Hello, I'm Claire White, and joining me is James Foey. Hello, hello. And this is Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. Today, we are talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula. But before we start, we'd like to introduce you to a podcast called Dear Murder Street. Are you in desperate need of advice, but maybe your problems are too strange, too scary, and too shameful for the average advice show? We are the Carol Sisters, hosts of the paranormal and true crime advice show, Dear Murder Street, and we are here to help. Do you suspect that your very shy and polite neighbor may, in fact, be a serial killer? Is there a ghost in your bedroom watching you change? Were you catfished by someone who turned out to be a very sad, very lonely extraterrestrial? Call and leave a message at 845 845- 418-6681 or write to us at dearmurderstreet at gmail.com. Visit dearmurderstreet.com for more information and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Dracula by Bram Stoker is an 1897 book written in London by an Irish author about a Im- <laughs> an immortal and long-lived blood-sucking monster whom you probably all know who is in a struggle with a group of English people and an American about whether or not he will be able to leave his evil lair in Transylvania and invade London and the world. I'm going to be doing the history, uh, talking about what exactly vampires are and where this myth of Dracula comes from. And I will be talking about the life and career of Bram Stoker, which I knew almost nothing about before doing this uh, research for this podcast. And uh, I'll also be talking about the particular influences of vampire legend that came into play for Dracula. I thought you were going to say the life and career of Dracula. (laughs) You have to read the book. (laughs) Oh, it's quite excellent. He's done so much. All right. So I'm going to start with what is a vampire? It is someone risen from the dead to suck the blood of persons who are asleep and eventually turn or kill, turn them into vampires or kill them. Though there are many different kinds and types of vampires from many different countries, as a rule, they tend to share these traits, especially the Western Dracula-like vampire. They have fangs. They use said fangs to drink human blood hunt at night because they are weakened by the sun, can morph into other animals, uh, though these animals are usually a bat or a wolf, maybe a dog, are super strong, have hypnotic sensual effects on victims, can't cast a shadow, and can't see their image in a mirror. The first vampire on record is the ancient Egyptian queen Akasha, An evil spirit fused with her flesh and mutated her heart and brain. She then turned her husband. There are vampire myths from all over the world, like I mentioned before, and places that didn't necessarily have a connection to one another. Greece, Philippines, Chile, Scotland, and the indigenous Australian tribes apparently had a vampire-type legend. What I came through my research is that it was a way to describe the fearful unknown in the wilds beyond civilization. The idea of the vampire that I believe most of the world is familiar with, uh, kind of an evolution of Bram Stoker's Dracula or Dracula, is what I'm going to look at today. And we're going to start looking in the small village of Medvida, Serbia. 
1732, Dr. Johannes Flutginger from the Hasburg Empire determined that there was no other conclusion but that vampires were ravaging the countryside and turning people. There was an epidemic, apparently, that was started by a young officer that fled to Serbia because he was being pursued by a vampire in Turkey. However, that didn't save him. The officer still died unexpectedly, and afterwards, the villagers reported seeing him wandering through the village and taking the shape of a black dog. Then, other villagers started showing the same symptoms he had, including the girl he was engaged to. I found this all in a really wonderful article um, in the Scientific American called A Natural History of Vampires. So... How did this happen? How did this conclusion happen that the only explanation was that this man was a vampire and was turning others? How? Okay. First of all, the area that we know today as the Balkans, which includes Serbia, was given to the Habsburg monarchy by the Ottomans in the Treaty of Pasowitz, I think I'm saying that right, in 1718. With it came a lot of Eastern European folklore, which merged with Christian ideas of witchcraft, and out of it came this vampire figure that became Dracula, and even now the monsters or misunderstood lovers that we know today. With hindsight, which is always 2020, vampires are almost always associated with disease. And like to talk about with witches in one of our earliest episodes on The Witch, uh, before modern medicine and modern science, people didn't understand why strange epidemics were happening and they were looking for an explanation and were willing to accept even fantastical ones. People were scared of what the dead, especially the dead that had been sick, could do to the living. A lot of times, if someone in the family died of disease, another member of the family would be affected by the same disease soon afterwards. An explanation for people who didn't understand bacteria and viruses was that the original disease carrier was attacking from the grave. Often, these disease outbreaks were happening in remote villages. There wasn't a huge mix in the gene pool, making the population more susceptible to disease. Also, people in these rural villages lived with their animals— easy for the disease to pass between humans, but also between humans and animals. And there was a lack of variety in their diet. Lacking some critical nutrients could also help diseases spread or help the body not fight disease. Many vampire cases can be linked to rabies outbreaks. And when I read this, it just made so much sense. Apparently, there were many outbreaks of rabies in Eastern Europe in the 1720s, and the people it was affecting needed an explanation. I mean, think about it. Snarling, slobbering animals, wolves, bats, dogs, and men that turned into completely different versions of themselves and are trying to bite other people who then get sick with the same thing. The idea of a person, a human with rabies, is awful. Right? Yeah. An idea of a wolf coming into your village with rabies is awful as well. Yeah. You can apparently trace the idea that vampires can turn into other animals through this. Uh, Rabies is common in wolves and dogs. So, you know, that this disease is affecting the wolves and dogs and the humans. Maybe they're just humans turned into wolves and dogs. It crossed the line between animals and humans, playing into the Christian fear of the line between man and beast. Also, fun fact, people with rabies are sensitive to smells, which is why 
they might have kept away from garlic. Oh, wow. Um, another disease which helped influence the vampire myth is porphyria, which happens when you are at a higher cardiovascular risk. This is because of deficiency of nutrients. This can happen when you have a limited diet. Symptoms were skin that would be sensitive to sunlight and become scaly and rough with blisters, a blackened tongue, unpredictable behavior such as insomnia, dementia, and violence, gums receding, and— uh, Which makes your teeth look longer. Yes. And gastrointestinal bleeding. Vampire scares also tended to happen during times of plagues. These diseases, when you think about it, are terrifying, especially um, to those with without the knowledge of what they are and how they can stop it. But why did they assume that these were vampires? Well, when the bodies were dug up, sometimes the bodies decomposed differently than what was expected. Of course, now we understand some of the reasons behind it. When buried during a cold season or in a cold part of the world, bodies would not decompose as fast as normal. Bacteria that causes decomposition uh, fed on blood, which is very protein-rich. And if there was hemorrhaging, the, de- uh, the decomposition would be slower. And hemorrhaging usually happened if the death was violent or unnatural. This was suspicious just in itself. So if somebody was murdered and had lost a lot of blood, they have less of what the bacteria is going to be feasting on in the first mm-hmm. place. So they're not going to decompose as quickly. Or they had a freak accident and they fell, you know, something like that. When corpses decompose, also fluid, um, which can be part like organs, can come out of the nose and mouth. And someone that would, you know, dig up the bodies, this fluid would be mistaken for blood that the corpse had drunk from a living creature. And people believe that the corpse had just gorged itself so much that the extra blood was coming out. Oh, and the lips. And the, mm-hmm. and the nose. Also, when you drove a stake through the heart of a corpse suspected of being a vampire, there usually would be a low-pitched groan or a high scream. Obvious proof that this entity was alive. Actually, when the lungs were punctured the, with the stake, the noises were of the gases being forced out. But I can understand why you would think that, oh, yeah, we really just did them in. Yeah, the things that would have to be happening in your community for you to be willing to dig up a corpse in the first place, how scared mm-hmm. you'd have to be because of real bad things that are actually happening. And then when you finally do it, you hear that sound as you put the stake in. Eventually, the myth of the vampire was, for the most part, dispelled. In the mid-18th century, Pope Benedict XIV declared that vampires were a fictitious story, and Maria Theresa, the ruler of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, also said that vampires weren't real. However, they did live on in minds for a while. It just took a while to weed out, and even today, there's ideas of real vampires, or people who say that they're vampires, and drink blood and that kind of thing. Yeah. I was reading about how there was a a real uh, fear of vampires in Greece in the 1800s of all times. So that's after what you're talking about. And really quickly, because I have a bit of time, I want to talk about who Bram Stoker is said to have based Dracula off of, uh, Vlad the Impaler. He ruled in Romania off and on from 1456 to 1462. He fought the Ottoman Empire, apparently hated the Ottomans, did horrible things while fighting them, 
most famous for impaling 20,000 defeated Ottoman troops on wooden stakes. And then? And then he apparently dipped his bread into the blood of his victims and ate it. But funny enough, I also read that many Romanians resent Vlad being used as an influence on Dracula and as a vampire precursor because they believe it's a result of centuries of the West trying to undermine their national hero. Yeah, I read that he's a hero in Romania. (laughs) And I thought, well, one man's hero is another man's monster. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And to hence what side writes history. Right, right. Well, James, I'm very excited to hear about Bram Stoker. Stoker. I always want to say, I don't know why I want to say Stoker. Stoker. Can you please tell me about him? His name would be more alliterative if it was Stoker. Mm. Maybe you want to perfect his name. Uh, So, Mr. Stoker was born in Dublin County in 1847, as I said. Uh, He is Irish, and uh, at this time it is actually culturally important to note that he is uh, Protestant Irish, or was Protestant Irish, and uh, his upbringing and education would facilitate him having an easy cultural time moving to London and being accepted as a gentleman there. He was educated at Trinity College in Dublin. That was from 1864 to 1870. And he got his first job as a civil servant, much like his father and some of his brothers, at Dublin Castle in 1870. Uh, His first published work was actually Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions in Ireland. Uh, And he wrote that book after he became the inspector of Petty Sessions in 1877. And it was just a reference manual for people who had jobs like his in the Irish government that they'd be able to use afterwards. Around that time, I mean, that's the first thing he really had published, like his first book, but he had started uh, writing short fantasy stories. Um, He was also writing theatrical reviews. And I just want to say, it's kind of like a cliche, from what I understand, a cliche Irish thing to have a job like that that is really just to support your real passion, which is writing. But anyway, uh, he began writing theatrical reviews for the Dublin Mail, and he actually was considered to be pretty good at it. They were supposed to be pretty high quality, and it's what got him the job that he was actually the most famous for in his lifetime. You see, he wrote a review of an actor that he greatly admired called Henry Irving, uh, eventually called Sir Henry Irving, who was one of the great actors of his time. He was coming through Dublin, was doing a show. Bram Stoker wrote a great review of it, and Henry Irving said, hey, I'd like to invite you, theater critic, out to dinner after that nice review you uh, wrote. And what happened is actually really intense because um, Henry Irving, in a way, could be said to be the most important person in Bram Stoker's life, even more than his wife. He said that when they met, it was the two of them staring into one another's souls. (laughs) Just this intense relationship where he became, after that, uh, something like Henry Irving's right arm. People talked about him like he was metaphorically an appendage of Henry Irving, and Bram Stoker was happy to be talked about that way. One of his friends talking about their relationship after both of their deaths said that as much as people talked about them being friends and about him working for him and being so close, that really people didn't understand the depth 
that he lived his life for Irving and that he and this man said, I don't think I'll ever see again a man devote himself so wholly to another man's life. So I should explain the jobs that he took on after that dinner in 1879 were that he would become Henry Irving's personal assistant, his secretary, his acting manager, and the theater that Henry Irving owned, the Lyceum Theater in London, he would become the business manager of that, and he would even direct the productions, and he would organize the tours, and when Henry Irving sometimes gave speeches, he would write those speeches. Uh, Right before this, before he moved to London, in 1878, he married Florence Balcombe, who was a noted beauty who also had had a relationship with Oscar Wilde, of all people. Wow. Yeah, Oscar Wilde and her, uh, something like courted for two years. And Oscar Wilde was very disappointed uh, when she broke it off with him and accepted Bram Stoker, Oscar Wilde, some say friend, some say acquaintance. They did reconcile later when uh, Oscar Wilde came and visited him in London. And Oscar Wilde, of course, would go on to fantastic success at the same time that... uh, Uh, Bram Stoker was running the Lyceum Theater and in the process of writing Dracula. Now that I've introduced um, the most important people in Stoker's life, I think it's important to bring up the thought that some people have today that uh, he was actually secretly a homosexual, that his marriage to Florence Balcombe was largely sexless, that uh, part of his even being uh, attracted to her was really part of a, a love triangle transference of affection with Oscar Wilde. I don't know how much I believe that last bit. I will say that when you look at things that he wrote to Walt Whitman, who he was a great admirer of, um, and the way that he wrote about um, Henry Irving and his relationship with him, I don't think anything sexually ever happened there. Uh, And some people said that Henry Irving wasn't as fond of of, uh, Bram Stoker as it was the other way around. He intensely loved him. And when you have those other suspicions about him and the way that he spoke out against homosexuality later in his life after what happened to Oscar Wilde, it does give you pause to think. Um, One of the reasons I even brought up the, the suspicion that he was homosexual was because I felt like you can't talk about his life, which I want to do before talking about his work, um, without mentioning that towards the end of his life, he advocated for the imprisonment of every homosexual author in England. Mm -hmm. And this is after they took what people would have called his acquaintance or his friend and his wife's former, you know... um, Suitor. Suitor. After Oscar Wilde had uh, been imprisoned. Yeah, for just... hard labor, for quote-unquote gross indecency. And by the way, that happened at the height of Oscar Wilde's popularity when uh, the importance of being earnest was being performed to rave reviews. Um, but I thought it important to mention because I know so little about Bram Stoker and uh, what may have been a great act of fear and cowardice I, th- I thought should be noted in his life. So, about his relationship with Henry Irving, it's interesting to note before we get into Dracula that... He was more famous in his time, not Henry Irving, but Bram Stoker, as the manager of a successful theater and the business manager of one of the most celebrated English actors of the time. That is what he was famous for even after Dracula came out, and his Times obituary actually mentions Dracula, which came out to pretty good reviews, only after it mentions his relationship to Irving. That was what was considered the primary importance of Bram Stoker in his life. Of course, that's not his legacy. 
As I mentioned before, Dracula was published in 1897. He began working on it in 1890, and from every account, it was a laborious process where he did a great deal of research, more than for most of his other works. You can tell. Yeah, you can. And where he had a lot of ups and downs, where the story (laughs) took a lot of different twists, and where he had a lot of um, lapses of confidence in himself and the book. Uh, But what came out was what everyone considers his greatest work. And as we move into Dracula, a little bit about his fascination with vampires and vampire legend. Bram Stoker said, quote, It touches both on mystery and fact. And this gets right into your segment. A person may have fallen into a death-like trance and been buried before the time. Afterwards, the body may have been dug up and found alive. And from this, a horror seized upon the people. And in their ignorance, they imagined that a vampire was about. Through excess of fear, might themselves fall into trances in the same way, and so the story grew that one vampire might enslave many others and make them like himself. And that's a little different than the way you were describing it, but it's still similar. He thought that idea of the mixture of superstition and fear and scientific reality was really interesting, and you can see that in the book. One of the things people comment on in Dracula is that it's something like a metaphorical barbarous past coming into this modern city of London and invading it. Um, And then the the people who are dealing with it are forced to resort to medieval, quote-unquote, methods Mm. to deal with this older threat. I like that. That's cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. When you get into the metaphors of what Dracula is about and the fears that it's— we can get more into that in the opinion segment, but it's very interesting. Uh, About the word Dracula, there's two different schools of thought about what this is about. One would connect him directly to Vlad the Impaler by saying that Dracula is the name that Vlad the Impaler also went by because his father was a name something like Drac, and Eula just means son of Drac or Draco, a word which at that time in that context meant dragon, where his father was called Dragon because he belonged to an organization called Dragon and took that name. And in Bram Stoker's notes, he says, quote, Dracula, in Valachian language, means devil. Valachians were accustomed to give it as a surname to any person who rendered himself conspicuous either by courage, cruel actions, or cunning. So it used to mean dragon back then, but it evolves into meaning just devil, and that's the meaning that he was using for Dracula. I will say also for the Romanian roots that he used for um, building Dracula as a Romanian vampire, there was a Scottish woman named Emily Gerard who had spent two years with her husband in Romania, uh, her husband serving in the Austro-Hungarian military, and she wrote a book called The Land Beyond the Forest, which detailed the vampire uh, myth out there called Mm -hmm. the Nosferatu, and she said, these people believe in it like they believe in heaven and hell. Right. I think it also is that um, like Western European looking in at the Eastern European myths, you know, even yeah. though like Western Europeans have their own myths as well. They certainly do. And people believe those also influenced Bram Stoker. So let's get into that because I just learned in researching for this podcast that Dracula is also a word in Gaelic. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that... Um, I mean, it's spelt much differently, but it, the, the sound ends up, ends up coming out uh, pretty much the same, and it means bad or tainted blood. And it's a word that originates from referring, uh, from referring to blood feuds, but it is also used to refer to some blood-sucking fairies and fiends. 
So I learned, uh, uh, well, I think we may have all already known, but for millennia, the Irish believed in these fairies called uh, she in Gaelic. Some of these, it turns out, drink blood. They exist in a world where they're walking amongst humans while simultaneously in the fairy world where our two worlds are overlapped. And there is a legend about a Dun Dracula, which means Castle Dracula, in the McGillicuddy Reeks Mountains in County Kerry that is said to be the home of shape-shifting, blood-drinking fairies. Very cool. Right? Castle Dracula in Ireland. There's also a legend about something called the Avertak, a fiendish dwarf that had lived for hundreds of years in, in Derry and was of a type of fairy that was literally, if you translate it, called the Walking Dead. Um, this fiendish dwarf uh, was defeated by a powerful chieftain after uh, several battles, attempted burials, and finally getting some sage advice from a wise druid. Anyway, the manuscript that describes that story was on display at Trinity College, where Bram Stoker attended. Now, others think that Irish history and his family's Irish history in a more scientific sense, also played a role. Um, when he was a child, uh, up until he was about seven or eight years old, he was very sickly and pretty much was bedridden and had to be carried everywhere. He eventually recovered, um, but he spent his time as a young child very sickly and using his imagination in a way that he said would serve him very well in later years. His mother told him many stories, some of which were about the uh, cholera outbreak, um, people think that she also may have given him descriptions of the potato famine which she lived through where people were said to have um, drank other people's blood to try to survive and people who were starving looked like they were walking dead. He also is said to have perhaps, according to historian Fiona Fitzsimmons, to have based Dracula on his ancestor Manus the Magnificent. Now, of course, there are several twists that Bram puts on a vampire that hadn't existed before um, and things that he leaves out that he was like, mm, this isn't going to work for my story. Uh, some vampires were said to have an obsessive compulsive disorder where if you scattered a bunch of seeds in front of them, they'd have to sit there and count each one and lose all the time they had for mm -hmm. murdering. <laughs> also, I think you mentioned this. Um, people thought that they were drinking blood as, as spectral forms from the grave, and that ghost was bringing the blood back to the corpse in the ground. He kept the ability of uh, him to um, dissipate himself into something like a mist, so, you know, there was that. And uh, he's the first one to have a vampire changing into a bat, so that's pretty oh, cool. that's cool. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned all the different animals and transforming, yeah. So, but the bat becomes kind of iconic, right? It does, it does. I, th I feel like I read that it, the idea that they could transform into animals and bats were included in that list has oh, been really? around for a while. But maybe it was just wolves and dogs for the most part. Well, maybe I read an article that was just wrong. It doesn't sound as interesting mm -hmm. and accurate as your rabies talk. Also, this is something I never picked up on. One of the books he used for his uh, research, uh, one of his source books, was The Book of Werewolves, written in 1863 by Saban Gould. And uh, in that, werewolves are described as having broad hands, squat fingers, hair in the palm, and uh, that's what Dracula looks like. Very sure specifically, does. he takes that exact description of werewolves, the eyebrows, the protruding canines, and, and one of the things Dracula can turn into is a wolf. 
Now, before we go, I'm running over time as I really do enjoy doing, <laughs> but I feel the need to mention that there was another book written by J.S. Lefanu, another Irish writer who in 1872 published a book called Carmilla. I mean, it started as a series of short stories, and it's only about 100 pages total, but it's a book about a female vampire that was also influential even today, and he must have known about. It seems crazy that he wouldn't have read it. Uh, It also, like Dracula, has a first-person accounting of things. Um, The uh, character of Lucy in Dracula seems very much to be based on the portrayal of Carmilla as this sexual female vampire. And uh, the book also has someone who just happens to be a vampire expert, which they're lucky to have in Dracula too. And she's able to move through walls, which uh, that idea of not being a spectral ghost-sucking blood, but being able to dissipate yourself into something like a mist, he might have gotten from her too. And I will mention, very last thing, the really cool thing that he did with this, where you have the... uh, journal entries and the transcripts of recordings to make this seem real. Originally, he wanted to go way further with it and tell people in the preface that this is real. And I know these people that said it happened and they're good people and they're trustworthy people. (laughs) And it might be hard to understand, but this is the truth. There had just been a bunch of murders in London. His editor said, under no circumstances can you have a preface that says that. And in fact, we're going to cut the first hundred pages too where you're leading in with that kind of thing. Um, We only know that that happened, that that was his preface because when he published it in Iceland and he was away from his English editors, he threw that back in (laughs) as well as other cut parts of the story in different editions published around the world. Finishing off with its reception, It was well-received critically, did okay in sales, this initial printing of 3,000. But what really got it going was that there were films and plays about Dracula that just rocketed the character into superstardom. The first is Nosferatu, directed by F.W. Murnau in 1922 with Max Schreck as Count Orlock. This thing shouldn't have been made. Mm -hmm. Um, Stoker's widow had to sue to eventually get all copies given to her and destroyed. She never watched it. She just said, hey, you never asked for my husband's permission for this, and you're doing theatrical premieres that say, this is Bram Stoker's Dracula. (laughs) (laughs) Messed up. Um, But after that, she does give permission for a licensed stage play by Hamilton Dean and John L. Balderston that does very well in London, and a Broadway producer sees it, puts it on Broadway, and has Bella Lugosi starring it on Broadway. Oh, wow. Yeah. It goes on tour and breaks records to become the most successful touring show in America. That's how Bella Lugosi, in his first English-starring role, is able to then land the film Dracula, directed by Todd Browning in 1931. And really the success of all that can be seen in the fact that the character Dracula has now appeared in more than 200 films and more than 1,000 books. It's quite a legacy. Isn't it? And that's not even just, oh, vampires have shown up here and there. No, Dracula. (laughs) I think we've talked about it before, characters where they are in other pieces. Is there a copyright on Dracula? Um, oh, I don't think, no, there can't, there can't be now. I know that when Nosferatu was played in the United States in 1929, uh, there was nothing she could do about it. 
right. because it was considered public domain in the United States. Right. So that other writers can then incorporate him into their stories. That does make it easier. Yeah. Interesting to note, we were talking about how Sherlock Holmes has appeared in so many different stories that mm-hmm. way. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle, uh, was a friend of Bram Stoker. Oh, cool. And told everybody they should read Dracula. <laughs> it is. So that we can transition to opinion segment now. Mm-hmm. You like Dracula? Yeah. Yeah, I read it um, multiple times as a kid. And I used to go to bed with my covers pulled up over my neck to make myself look less appetizing. <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> so far, I think. Um, I read it as a teenager, and then I reread it for this, and it was amazing how much fun it was. to I didn't remember anything to reread. Um, and how well the characters are written. And, I mean, they're a little bit cliche, but it's the fun of it and how scary Dracula is. Oh, yeah. He is a great bad guy. And mm. you can see why he keeps on reappearing. Oh, I d- didn't talk about this in He's my— bestial and refined at the same time. Right. What is also very interesting, and I hope we can say for another podcast, is the evolution of the vampire and how he's become actually more of a central figure, especially in, like, the last 20 years, I would say. Maybe, the, no, since, like, the 80s. I feel yeah. like Anne Rice has done a lot for vampires. I was reading an article that I think was from something like 2012, and it was talking about how— you know, the vampires in things like Twilight were more popular than the slayers Buffy and Blade had been. Oh. The, the, the thing of the vampire being the character you care most about and love the most, that twist I mean, more than the totally slayer. I mean, it totally makes sense. I, but I think, like, if you think of Interview with a Vampire, you know, the older Anne Rice books, like, those ideas have been around for a bit. And people love Interview with a Vampire. And those vampires are supposed to be sympathetic. Yeah, they are. I will say that— They're supposed to be handsome, too. Yeah. (laughs) Dracula is compelling. And Dracula isn't handsome. No. No, I just want to state that in the book he is not— a sexy man. No, he he's a primal man. He's a lustful man, but he's a monster that needs getting put down. He's just a monster that can wear a coat and walk the streets. And what's even more funny is this idea that vampires have evolved from plague carriers or bringers of plague to sexy twilight <laughs> vampires. Yeah, but it kind or of— Or true blood vampires. The sex thing is there in the original Dracula because— It is, it is. He behaves in a way and the females behave in a way that you're not supposed to in Victorian society. And if you think of that as a bad thing, that's one way to look at a vampire as, who has that as part of them. But if you look at the unleashing of your sexual appetites as potentially a positive thing, a vampire who innately has that characteristic— may become a more sympathetic character. Right. No, I just meant that, you know, if you look at the origins of vampires and then to where we've taken them. Oh, from a somebody that's like a rabid dog to a sparkly Seattle dweller? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a big jump. I thought it was really interesting to read literary criticism that talked about um, a fear of immigration, of Eastern European immigration, oh. uh, that talked about uh, racial fears um, one Is this the, a modern review? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. There, there I was, was wow, one, that's very woke for <laughs> Victorian England. There was another one that was talking about how there's this thing where there's a fear of what will happen to the English race and how bringing in people from the colonies 
who have the pioneering spirit more in them but are descended from your race can help rejuvenate the English. So that actually in a bunch of his books, he has Americans, both men and women, coming in and marrying English people. And like that's a positive thing. And he traveled extensively in America, had good things to say about our country, but also maybe racist things about how were great these white of, folks were doing over here. Were there a lot of immigrants in England at the time? Um, I think there, there were some Eastern European immigrants coming in. I also like that he wanted to make it seem more real. Yeah. I yeah. wonder if that would have sold more copies. Oh, if he had if he had kept that preface in? Yeah, and it had I become mean, a sensation. He does it so well. The I, I mean, this is the thing about Carmilla. One of the things I read that people say is similar is that, you know, Carmilla is written from the heroine's first-person perspective. And that, yeah, sure, that's compelling, but there's a lot of books written from a first-person perspective. It's different to say, hey, I'm going to make this journal entries. I'm going to make this trans recorded transcripts. Um, newspaper articles, and I'm going to tell you at the beginning that this is real and I've just assembled it all for you to try to make sense of it. Ooh, that's so good. I mean, it's good not even with him doing the preface. I bet it would have hit even harder with the preface. Right. No, but I wonder how you say it wasn't a huge success in its time. Like, oh. it was good, but, like, if he had been able to make it sensationalist, would it have been a runaway success? Maybe. I mean, it also would have been 101 page lo pages longer. The book starts... On a page one, on page one hundred two, his editor made him cut one hundred one pages and have what he had written on page one hundred two start this book. It probably is better for it. It probably editors can do some real good work. If it's that good a book without a hundred pages, it probably didn't need that hundred pages. I think it is uh, actually genuinely creepy that there have been legends about vampires for thousands of years all over the world. You know, I thought about this a lot because I was doing it as part of my research. It makes total sense. Corpses are terrifying. And that is something that all humankind has in common. And that a corpse could come back to life is terrifying. It's, it's something that has scared me since I was a kid. So it makes sense that all of these cultures have like some kind of idea of a reanimated corpse coming to get you. And especially without modern medicine and all these things going wrong, you have to find an explanation for it. So why not pick one of the most terrifying things you can think of? Well, also, bloodsuckers are real in nature. Also, cannibals are a real thing. Um, and I also, humans drinking blood is a thing. One of the things I read about was um, that in Eastern Europe, sometimes hunters um, would drink animal blood yeah, to, to help supplement their, their lack of water. And they we, would— We know the Mongols did that. Yeah, we know the Mongols did that on the regular. They would have that the milk of horses and then mix it with horse blood, stir it around and drink it. And now you got a one of the most— terrifying armies that has ever rode the face of the earth. And maybe it's all because of the blood milk. But <laughs> what I was going to say, they said the hunters who did that would sometimes get addicted to drinking animal blood. Mm. How intense is that? All these things are real. Right. Why not and believe so in why vampires? not combine it all together to believe in vampires? And I, I think it still is scary. You know, I think that because it is such a universally 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 terrifying thing. I can say words. It is scary. And so that's part of the reason why that myth is so popular. And I mean, it gets sexed up a little bit as well. But the idea... If you've got a good idea, 
it doesn't hurt to sex it up. No. <laughs> but the idea of coming back from the dead and then feeding off of you. Yeah. Oh, can I just mention before we end? Yeah. Have you heard about that study where they take um, blood from young mice and put it into old mice and the old mice do better? No. Yeah. Well, we have blood transfusions now. Yeah, we totally do. So maybe vampires are real. I mean, there's. I'm just saying there's something to it. There's something to it. I can imagine Dracula seeing that study in the paper, putting it down and saying to his dinner guest, see? <laughs> see? <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm James Foey. And we are Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsripodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on social medias at dsripodcast. I can be found on Twitter at along with Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. I can be found on Twitter at at James Foey Jr. That's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And you can find Kyle at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. You can learn more about Dracula on our Facebook page where James swears he's going to post. It's not just me. It's not just me. I need the others' help, too. <laughs> we're going to post, our, show. We're we gonna post our articles and links to them because they are very interesting. Our producer, who I think doesn't have rabies, <laughs> is James Fowey. Oh, man. I was hoping for some, like, sexy, dark stranger on the street reference, but... Not our, having rabies, thanks. Our logo is done by vampire hunter Patty Highland. And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who, little known fact, lives with a small vampire named Lucy. Yes, vampires can take the form of terrier mutts. Once again, this is Dragon's Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks with Coraline.